fantastic year of ministry here at Preston City Bible Church, and I was privileged to pastor with you and study with you, and, uh, and my prayer continues that you would be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior so that you could be pleasing to Him. 2021 was a tough year for the Roseland family. In our church family, we lost Don Harris, who was with us for, I think, something like 30 years, maybe longer. He lost his wife, Carol, the year I came here, and Don went home to be with the Lord this last year, and we miss him. He was such a joy. We lost my mother-in-law, Beverly Wright, nay, George, who was married in her last few years to Robert Eberhardt. Wonderful grandpa, even though not, not physically related. Fantastic man. We love him very much. This is a time of, uh, of mourning and, uh, and also rejoicing in this last year. We also lost John Elston. I got to visit with John the last um, few days of his life. Right before going into surgery, we prayed about it, and he was very resolute. Those of you who knew him well know he was resolute about the choice he had made. He did not want to suffer in the pain he was in anymore, and the doctors were divided over whether his surgery, whether he could recover from the spinal surgery that they would have to do to give him some pain relief. And uh, he did well in the surgery and then died in recovery. And God has our days numbered, and we want to remember those that have gone on to be with the Lord. And want to remind ourselves in this brief moment, we're all in the queue. <laughs> Dave Willis, who is here with us today because of God's miraculous grace, thinks that's hilarious. Dave almost went home to be with the Lord uh, in 2021. We, Dave, you would have been in the list. Dave had a 100% blockage in, a, in an artery that they call the Widowmaker. And uh, he had a heart attack and didn't, uh, the, the doctors, he went into the doctor, they didn't find it. They, 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 missed it. they missed a heart attack that he was having. He went back three days later. They said, you had a heart attack three days ago at the other, uh, the other uh, uh, doctor. Be sure you get second opinions. And the, the thing is, whether you uh, have 100% blockage in an artery that I believe killed my father, or whether you, the doctors completely missed the heart attack you're having, if God wants you to persist in this life, you're stuck. You're going to persist in this life. And if God is ready for you to come home, Get ready. You're going home. And that is a horrible thing to contemplate, our physical death. It's awful to think that this body is going to run its course, serve its purpose, and we're going to be absent from this body. But it's also the best thing because you're absent from the body and present with the Lord. And we'll look at that a little bit today as we review 2021. I love the um, second Sunday of the year because we have our annual business meeting as a church family. Mike, Mike was concerned. He said he didn't want the meeting to run, you know, eight, nine hours uh, the other day. And I thought that was somewhat of an exaggeration since I believe our average business meeting time is something like seven and a half minutes. We are a church family that like to conduct business in, a, in an orderly manner. You might have noticed the packets out front. Those packets are the deacons' reports. We have the deacons and their responsibilities in the church family are for the care of the flock, for the looking out and the service of the body. That's what deacon means. It means servant. And some, um, and, and, and some have, very, well, they all have various duties that are their sort of collateral job that they do in addition to the care of the church family, like treasurer, like the media, like... Um, grounds maintenance and these things. Those reports are available for you and they've been out there on the foyer. I noticed we have a huge stack uh, of leftovers. Those are the deacon reports so that you can know what we're doing, uh, what we did in 2021 and what we're planning for 2022. Like, um, don't look at the light. That's part of the report that's been filed for a long time. That's what we're doing. These are the plans we're making. And we don't always have everything planned out for the whole year. You can't. But what we do know that we'd like to do this year is, is in their report. So you're supposed to already have all your questions um, out there because we've already published it. And it's, you know, it's been a two-week discussion. We haven't heard a lot of discussion about that, and we generally don't. But that means that the, deacons, the, sorry, the annual business meeting is a fairly brisk affair. We just knock it out because we've already had the discussions. 
That's kind of the idea. Well, I didn't already have the discussion, but the time for discussion has been running for two weeks. So if you have any questions, certainly we want to entertain them. Uh, if you're a member and you want to do, do business with us. But that's, that's the Deacon's reports, and that's the genesis of this talk this morning. I don't file a, a, a report in that. I don't tell you what we did through the teaching of the year. I do it second hour before the Deacon's meeting, so you can know where we've gone and where we're going. And it's kind of a gut check on, did you learn from God's Word what we taught this year? And if you didn't, it's okay. I mean, it's really not. I'm really hurt about that. But it, if you didn't, um, it's an archive. Everything we said is available for you in, um, in the church archive, PrestonCityBible.org slash learn, I think is how you find it. And uh, you can go through the series. We closed out two series of teaching in 2021. While traveling, I was traveling a great deal, taking care of my family. Again, my mother-in-law died in early June, and my family was spending um, the last school year with her to because uh, we knew she was in a terminal condition. And it was a wonderful blessing. The church family enabled us uh, by a lot of times the, the, the deacons and, and others would help pitch hit and, um, and preach when I couldn't be here in, in town. And a lot of travel, and God was gracious all along the way. Um, we were blessed with so many messages. We heard from Mike in Deuteronomy. We heard from, um, <clears throat> from uh, Mark Rabon in, uh, in Joshua. And um, uh, he did another message on, um, oh, it's slipping my mind at the moment. Uh, John Miles shared a lot about the Feasts of Israel and the, um, the, the deliverances of that and several messages in a little series on the feasts in uh, the, the book of Leviticus and through the, the, cal- the Israelite calendar. Um, we had, um, Rusty gave his first message here. Uh, about trusting in God. You know, I remember Rusty speaking. It was, it's been a great year of teaching. A lot of diverse material uh, was presented. The two things that I want to close out 2021 with you about today are the Christian life of Paul and the study we did on prayer in the New Testament that we call Thy Will Be Done. And we'll do that in that order. And we'll just kind of summarize some things this morning because I think there are such awesome takeaways from God's Word in the big summary. But to, to really engage in this material, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, we want the Holy Spirit to mediate this Word to our hearts. Let's take a moment for silent prayer over the Word that we're going to share together, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we come to you and open your word this morning in a summary fashion because we want to be about your business. We want to glorify you. We know that that requires our growth. Father, in every case, that requires our appetite. We have to be primed and trained to want the things of God. Father, we often have to confess that we don't want your things. We're not hungry for your word. We're distracted and we're easily led. Father, let your spirit lead us this morning. As we pay attention to your word, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the Christian life of Paul. I almost want to ask the audience, like ask the congregation, do you, do you know what the Christian life of Paul refers to? We started in the book of Acts where you first meet Saul of Tarsus. Where do you first meet Saul of Tarsus? Anybody recall? Yeah, Acts chapter 7. He's the guy. Fully, he's the authority figure from, the, from the, the Pharisees on site that we know of that's holding the men's robes while they're stoning Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. That's where you first meet him. He is the boogeyman. He is the worst person in the world in his time because he is the most zealous to destroy the body of Christ. This new organization, this new group of people who are believing in Christ as their Savior and the aftermath of the resurrection of Christ and the events of Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came and began building the church. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, is a Pharisee of the Pharisees and he wants to completely exterminate the church in its infancy. He doesn't know of it as the church. He knows it as those people that followed Jesus of Nazareth. And so in the day in which Stephen was stoned to death, and then, and then what follows where Saul goes after the, the Christians that have run to Damascus from Jerusalem to go bring them back in chains, possibly stone them to death. In this early phase that we meet this man, he would be to us as believers in Christ, 
he would be to us the worst man in the world. He would be the person we were most frightened of in terms of marshalling political and government power to oppose us, to torture us, to even kill us. And we would be most concerned about staying off of his radar. And then God did something. In Acts chapter 9, he met the Lord Jesus Christ on his way to Damascus to imprison the Christians. And he became one of them. And it's a miraculous thing that God does. It's a rare thing. It's Actually, we don't know of any other cases where the Lord Jesus meets a man in his resurrection body. Jesus meets him and says, why are you persecuting me? And God flips him. God takes the person that you and I would most associate with danger and hazard and turns him into the most important person to communicate the policies and the plan of the Lord Jesus for us, the body of Christ. He becomes the most important teacher of the church, arguably in the sense that he gives us the most teaching material in his epistles. 13 letters by Paul, some say 14, because they include the writing of the book of Hebrews, which I do not. I think it's a Pauline associate, and I don't think he's named. So 13 letters by Paul, and then you have to include Luke, who is Paul's physician and associate, the one that Paul is working with, who writes the, the gospel of Luke and Acts, one-third of the New Testament. Such a vital person. We know, nothing, we, we know, we know more about the Christian life from the Apostle Paul than from any other person in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, from all the disciples writing about him. We know more about the walk as a follower of Christ from Paul's example than anyone else in the New Testament. Now think about that. You have five letters or five writings by the Apostle John. We have two from Peter, and he oversaw Mark's gospel. We have the Gospel of John, the three letters of John, and the book of Revelation. Very little of that is autobiographical material about what his life was like. Paul is always telling you his thoughts, his concerns, what his life is like. He's so important for us to understand what it is to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to abide in Christ. And so the Christian life of Paul was our effort over three years. It was a big work. It was our, and we just, not, we, just, we just plugged away at it. We just did a step at a time. We took the life of Paul as portrayed uh, narratively in Acts and where in the story of Paul's life he would have written the letter, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we, we surveyed the letter and saw it in its context historically in Paul's life. And it's a summary. It's three years through Paul is just a summary. But what a summary, what a joy it has been, and what a hard thing it is to put this to bed. One thing you get out of the Christian life of Paul is you get a roadmap for reading this important body of New Testament theology and instruction. It's a contextual roadmap because it's in the sequence, in the order of Paul's writing. He wrote Galatians first, 1 Thessalonians second, 2 Thessalonians third, and then we believe it would be 1 Corinthians. That's the sequence. Of, of Paul's writing. The last letter Paul wrote is not Titus or Philemon, it is 2 Timothy, and is the letter where he tells you that he is going to die. So we saw the sequence of his letters and his care for the churches he planted, and we asked the question all the way through. When you watch what Paul's doing as it's described by Luke and Acts, and you read what he's writing in his letters, do you not see Paul is carrying out the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is the Christian life of Paul. We don't need to talk about Pauline Christianity. We need to talk about Christianity because Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not one of the, he's not the, the type of Kung Fu that we learn and we're Pauline. He is of Christ like the rest of the apostles. And so we know Jesus because we have listened to Paul. We've summarized the, the Paul's letters and we've demonstrated that he was on the same mission as we are in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. The Apostle Paul and the Christian life of Paul is doing exactly what the risen Christ said right before he ascended in giving the mission in Matthew 28. Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
And then in verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When Paul issues a directive to the churches he's writing to, he is coming with the authority of Jesus Christ and doing exactly what Jesus said. He is teaching them to keep all that he commanded. When Paul says, walk in dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16, this is the great commission. This is what Jesus wants you to do. When Paul said, be filled by the Spirit, not drunk with wine in Ephesians 5.18, he's telling you what Jesus wants you to do. He's saying what Jesus said in John 15, abide in me and I in you and you'll bear much fruit for without me you can do nothing. The Apostle Paul is coming from Jesus with the word of instruction from the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when you and I are fixated on the Apostle Paul, understand it is how we are fellowshipping with our God in Christ Jesus. This is the biblical doctrine, I believe, of apostolic succession. There is no apostolic succession after John died. The apostle John apparently was the last of the apostles to die. And there's no apostles after him. There are no apostles after him. There's nobody in a chair anywhere saying, I'm the next one. Because you had to, Paul says, you had to visibly see the risen Christ and be taught of him. You had to be commissioned by him to be an apostle. And so what is the doctrine of apostolic succession? It is the succession of apostolic authority through the scriptures over the body of Christ throughout this age. We are under the apostles and therefore we glorify God in him sharing with us what to do in the spiritual life we've been given in the instruction of the apostle Paul. And this has a consequence. Because we have all of this instruction, we can sit around, let me illustrate. We can sit around and just listen. We can be hearers of the word and hearers only. When I was a little kid in church, we had a song, Be Ye Doers of the Word. That was great. It, repeti- it was repetitive, but it really made a good point. Not hearers only, be ye doers of the word. This is what Paul shows you. He wasn't just a studier of the word. His last letter to Timothy says, Send me the, bring me the coat and the parchments. I need my Bible and I need my cloak because I'm cold and I need to study. But Paul isn't just a studier, he's a doer. His whole life is doing the work of the gospel. And when I say the work, I'm not talking about a contradiction of God's grace. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. I'll read it. In Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that literally says you are now in the present, having been with past completed work saved. It's a present perfect paraphrastic. For by grace you are now having been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. That salvation by grace through faith is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. And we don't stop reading. And what you do with that by grace through faith salvation is acknowledge who you are. Paul says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's the new birth and the new creation that you are in Christ. And you are created new in Christ by grace through faith, Unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God, in your, English, in your King James, says ordained beforehand or beforehand ordained. And so that sometimes makes people think, well, it'll be inevitable that I walk in the works. No, he created them. He prepared them beforehand. And so God has you and he has a plan for you. And that plan is the grace works of God in the mission that he's given you. The word of God and the Apostle Paul is going to get us off the sofa into the Christian labor or we're just going to ignore him. We're going to do one of two things. We'll, we'll take what God says through Paul as true and assume it and live it or we'll ignore it. When the Apostle Paul is challenged by the Corinthians that he's not as good a speaker as Apollos, We'd rather Apollos was our pastor. When you come around, we don't like to hear you as well as basically what the Corinthians tell Paul. He really had trouble with the churches in Galatia and the churches in Corinth, the two, let, the two groups of letters that are, um, are disciplinary. Galatians is a disciplinary letter because they've backed off the gospel of grace and added works of circumcision. And because in Corinth, they are disregarding Paul's apostolic authority and his fatherhood, in a sense, where he has evangelized them and begotten them as his spiritual children by that work that God sent him to do. And they have said, Apollos is better. We'd rather listen to him. Apollos is 
a good pastor who is in training under the apostles. But he's, he's more polished in his delivery than Paul, and so they like him better, and that is arrogance to say we're worried about the personality of the speaker instead of the message of the Creator that he's ordained for us through whichever speaker the Lord puts in front of us. And that's the problem of Corinth is they're dividing over who's the pastor. This is my right pastor, and this is my right pastor. That is carnality in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians. I hope you understand. The Christian life of Paul says Jesus is our pastor. He's our great shepherd, says Peter in 1 Peter 2. Now, Paul is saying, Apollos is just a servant of the Lord, just like I am. I planted, Apollos watered. I'm just doing the work that God sent me to do. And it's God's work. God is the one doing the work. And then he applies it to the Corinthians that he, Paul is doing his work for the Lord. Apollos is doing his work. And the Lord is the judge. The Corinthians aren't the judge. The Lord is the judge. But listen to the way this affects you. 1 Corinthians 3.12. If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. I'm working for Jesus. I'm using the materials he gave me and he's going to test my work by, by putting it through a blasting furnace. And this is very important as a mirror for the Corinthians. Corinthians, you're worried about who's the pastor. Are you worried about Jesus being satisfied with your works? with the walk that you have with him and the product of it. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. This is the problem in Corinth, and it is Paul's answer. But notice how good this is for you and me. Because the Corinthians are carnal, they're acting like unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 3.1, you're acting like mere men because you're dividing over human personalities and not uniting over Jesus Christ and his work for you. Because you're carnal, I have to write this letter to you, but because I wrote this letter to you, and this happens in all Paul's letters, the occasion is what it is. Paul's in prison, so he has to write a letter. You and I now benefit from that. Because Paul had a a carnal problem in Corinth, you and I now know that the works that you and I perform and the power God gives us with the materials he gives us will result in eternal rewards for us that we will have forever and ever and ever. There is a consequence to your Christian walk, Corinthians. There's a consequence to our Christian walk, you of Preston City Bible Church. If there was a summary verse for Paul's life, we would take it out of Philippians chapter 1, and we did in naming our series, our little subline, our, sub, our byline for this, uh, the Christian life of Paul, is for me to live as Christ and die as gain. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, you have this incredible testimony for Paul. Beloved, is this your life? I'm about to say something that's radical in the culture that you live in, if you look left and right, if you look at the world around you, if you ask your friends, you watch TV, if you try to see what they're saying on Facebook, this will be considered an extreme. This will be taken as something that is out of tolerance. He's lost his mind. Understand what I'm about to say. But what I'm trying to tell you is we're supposed to imitate the Apostle Paul as he imitates Christ. And he is not saying this so that you'll know that he's a super duper Christian. He's saying what he's going to say in Philippians 1, 21 through 26, because you and I need to join him in the baseline of living our lives in the power of God to his pleasure. You are all facing what we started with. We are all in the queue, Dave. We're all going to have the last day of this phase of life. And it is not the end. It is the end of this phase. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. And listen, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you haven't trusted in Christ that He paid for your sins on the cross, your sin separates you from God, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, Christ paid for those sins on the cross to buy you with His blood. If you don't understand that, then what I'm about to say about Christian works are irrelevant to you. This has nothing to do with you. There is no work you can do to gain God's favor, which was secured only by the work of Christ on the cross. I've read Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 already. For by grace are you saved through faith. That is it. But if you have trusted in Christ and so been born into the new life and have therefore the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling you, 
If you are under that command of the Apostle Paul as a believer to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit, if you're to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, if you're to abide in Christ as Jesus taught in John 15, if that's who you are, then you need to join the Apostle Paul. We all need to join the Apostle Paul with what he can say in Philippians 1, 21 through 26. He says, for me to live is Christ. And it's very terse in the Greek. For me to live is Christ. And to die is keridos, is profit. Because of where you're headed. If I'm to live on in the flesh, Philippians, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Now he's, he's, he's in prison when he writes Philippians. Again, God's arrangement of the circumstances is that Paul has to be in prison so he can't go to the people and teach them face to face like he wants. He has to write to them. But because in the inspiration of the Spirit he wrote Philippians, the letter, you and I have it. And we can be Philippians. We can rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. We can have this thinking in ourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is in prison, and it may be that he will be sentenced to death. So there is over him the sword of Damocles. It may be that death is the the outcome of his imprisonment with the Romans. And so he says, if I live on, it's fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. Why does he not know which one to choose, to live or to die? Because for him... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Because the one that he knows face to face from the road to Damascus where he's blinded, he's about to see face to face forever and ever and ever. That's your destiny. And that's what Paul's telling us about our death. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. If anyone ever tells you, beloved, that when you die, you're just dead. Remember what Paul says in this awesome statement of life and death. It's very much better to be with the Lord than to be in this life. Hey, this life's pretty good. I went, I went yesterday with the kids. Some of you came. We went and sledded. We did some downhill and it was great for the most part. And, um, and, and everybody got in the van at the end and went home with all their body parts. It was great. Fun things in this life. I really like going downhill over frozen terrain. It's great, especially with my kids. A lot of fun things in this life. A lot of good times. When it snowed the other day, finally. And now we're like, okay, we're done. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of neat things about this life. A lot of things we look forward to in the near term. A little experiment I like to do about you and your question of life and death. Think about the things that you think you'll miss when you die, that you enjoy in this life, your family, your friends, like the important things. It's the, it's the question my kids ask me, will there be X in heaven? Will there be horses in heaven? I know there's one, Revelation 19, Jesus comes back on a white horse. It, 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 is, there, is, there, um, is, there pup, is the puppy going to be in heaven? Um, is... Um, Whatever you think a little kid, like, like I really like to play Gaga. This Israeli thing we play with the kids, this Israeli dodgeball outside Gaga. Will there be Gaga in heaven? Why do you want to know that? Because I really like it here, and I hate the idea of never being able to play it again. Apply that to anything, anything you enjoy doing. Paul is saying that we are struggling, we are muddling through, even in the fun things in this life, it's much better. However much you enjoy this life, it's much better to be with the Lord. If you have beloved family and friends, when you think of them who have died in Christ that are absent from this body and present with the Lord, think about the joy that they have because Paul, who had been to the third heaven, who has seen Jesus and been taught by him, check it out in 2 Corinthians 12, he was caught up to the third heaven and taught by the Lord revelations that he's not allowed to share because he'll exalt himself. The apostle Paul, taught by Jesus, can say it's much better to be there. You want to go there. But he says, then, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. It's for you, believers in Christ, for whom I am serving, that I'm here in this life. Paul's life, which is Christ, is for the service of the body of Christ. 
Now, what do you have in common with Paul? You have a spiritual gift. You are a believer in Christ with the Holy Spirit in you to accomplish all that God wants for you to in his mission. You have the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have the assets that, that go, ahead, go along with that mission. So you have a lot in common with Paul. And let, let's ask the question, do you see your life as in Christ, my life, for me to live as Christ, so that my life is for the service of the body of Christ? Do you see that as your life? I told you it would be radical to say this. No, 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 pastor. This is an apostle. We'll let you be that way. You be a, a pastor. We're not going to be the pastor. <clears throat> Paul is giving you an example of someone who says, for me to live as Christ. And no, you, you may not be a pastor. You may, you, none of us is an apostle. But you absolutely can live your life to please God in your care for the body of Christ. That's the challenge of the Christian life of Paul. Convinced of the fact that I still have work to do, I know that I'll remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith <coughs> so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Beloved, that is you and me. We want to be that, and that is what you get from really thinking through the Christian life of Paul. It isn't just how God built the church through Paul. He did. It isn't just how apostles should be. They are. Apostles are examples for us. So let's copy Paul. Gotcha. <laughs> did y'all notice what had just happened? Oh, I didn't do it. Never mind. Let's copy Paul. In 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to turn there briefly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I have three places I want to highlight today where Paul tells you to copy him. He tells the Corinthians to copy him and other believers. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Now the reason I ask you to turn there, there's a reason I, I did it. In, in the next verse, in verse 2, Paul says a word. Jerry, what's the first word in verse 2 in yours? Now. Now. Really good. That's the translation of the particle, the post-positive uh, particle de, which is could be but or now. My Bible says now. Now I praise you because you remember me. Now this is where the paragraph breaks. Verse two of First Corinthians eleven is the new thought. So verse one actually goes with the previous paragraph in chapter ten. See what happened? Like whoever put the numbers in, they botched this one. It's this verse one should be first Corinthians 10 34. It happens. The Holy Spirit did not inspire the numbers of the, of the paragraphs of the verses of the chapters. Now let's go back to the previous paragraph in verse 31. I know it's a paragraph break because my helpful Bible uh, editors put it in bold. 31 is bold. That's the paragraph. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This context, remember, in 1 Corinthians 10 is the doubtful things and the care of the conscience of your brother. The person with a weaker conscience who doesn't understand there's no such thing as an idol. And if we eat food that behind the, 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 the curtains at the meat market was sacrificed to idols, if I eat a steak that was sacrificed to a false god, as a believer that knows the nature of real metaphysics, I don't think that there's anything to that idol. God made that meat, and whatever pagan said over it, I don't care. I'm going to eat that meat to God's glory. That's the strong conscience, the strong faith. But the believer with the weaker faith, who's accustomed to the idol, who has worshipped at those idols, who has eaten steak to the glory of Baal or whoever, or Apollo in this, in this culture, or, or Aphrodite, these people that have worshipped the false gods through their trip to the steakhouse, they've put that part of their lives away. They're, they're, they're serving God and not worshipping idols, and now their conscience is broken if they would take part in this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. They don't understand. They're still stuck in that mindset, and, and they need to grow out of that, and you have to be patient and let them grow. And this is the, the consideration of one another's conscience. <coughs> and Paul says um, if I, Paul says, I'd rather not eat meat ever again for the sake of my brother if, if it doesn't defile his conscience to help him along because the issue is not what we eat. It's, it's who died for our sins. It's spiritual life. It's the things of God. And so 
It, it doesn't mean you have to be a vegetarian either. You're not more holy for being a vegetarian, but you are in your right Christian conduct when you care for one another's conscience. And the stronger believer can bear along with the weaker believer. Now the question is, who's the stronger and weaker in the, in the doubtful thing you're worried about? Charles Spurgeon would call people out, Prince of Preachers in London. <clears throat> he would call out other preachers who were known to visit the theater and watch plays and operas because they're involving themselves in worldly pursuits. Because he would never be seen patronizing the theater. I'm a Christian. Fast forward to 1950. Everybody's got a TV. 1960, everyone's got a color TV. Well, it's, it's headed that way. And today, what would Spurgeon say about people today? See, the Bible doesn't say don't watch TV or, or go to the theater, but that was a conscience thing for Spurgeon. This is what we call a doubtful thing, right? I'm just showing you that there's lots of things there besides the thing they're dealing with in Corinth. But the principle is that we protect each other's conscience because we're focusing on what matters on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And learning of him, you'll learn that there's nothing to an idol. You can have a stake in Corinth. <clears throat> but when your brother doesn't understand that, you, you, you withhold yourself for their sake. Give no offense to verse 32, either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. For Paul, it's about Jesus Christ. You see it? And he would have a stake with you if you understood. But he wouldn't force it on someone that didn't get it. It would not be an issue. He would keep it as a non-issue. You see this doubtful thing? We have these things today. And so Paul says, in that sense, be imitators of me as I also am of Christ. I keep first things first, and I'm on mission. You can be on mission, beloved, even in what you eat and what you drink and what you do with your free time because your life is hidden with Christ and God because your life, like Paul, is for the work of God. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, <clears throat> he also says, imitate him, when he says, brethren, Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, this is one of the most difficult places to look in the mirror of the word. We all need to do it at times because of what he says in verse 18. But he says, join in following my example. The context? I am advancing in verse 14 toward the goal of the, upward pro of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm advancing in verse 16 by the same standard to which I've already attained. I'm walking worthy of my calling. <clears throat> this is the forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to the things ahead portion in Philippians. It's so helpful. <coughs> we've all made mistakes. We've all had things that we regret. Even if you, if, even if you say you don't have any regrets, you have regrets. You, you, maybe you've learned not to wallow in them. But we don't live in our regrets. We live with, in light of the coming of Christ. In the present, which is all you get, is you can live in the present. And so you advance forward. So verse 17, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to this pattern. This is how Christians take on Christ. Is God raises someone up in front of us, and then we watch them, and we look at the word, and we imitate the faith of those who lead. And it's about Jesus, not about Paul. Very important to get that. It's not about who the pastor is. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can't see the Lord Jesus, then you need to move. Whoever's in the way, move out, move, move where, where you can see him again. Because somebody might have gotten in your way of Christ. You might need to make, a, make an adjustment. But verse 18 is where it gets harsh. The contrast of walk in the pattern of Paul, where your life is Christ and to die is gain, where your whole life in Christ is to serve the body of Christ, the contrast is walking according to your stomach, to your appetite. For many walk of whom I often told you, now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is directly in contrast to what he says, walk, walk like I walk, not like these people. What is wrong with these people in verse 19? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their stomach. They are serving their stomach. Who set their minds on earthly things. 
what makes you an enemy of the cross is that your whole attention, your, your, your orientation of life is on the details of life, often the blessings that God has given us instead of God himself. And so your appetite, your feelings, this is what you're serving instead of God, regardless of, at times, your feelings. Christianity is not for just those who want to feel something. Christianity is primarily and first something we think through and the feelings come in response. But if your God is your stomach, your appetite, then you, you are part of the ranks that Paul's describing, enemy of the cross, because you've set your mind on earthly things. In Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Philippians, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You'll be walking in fellowship with God if you act like me. Now that would be a horribly arrogant statement to make if Paul was not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying walk with God. I walk with God. It's a hard walk at times, but he's powerful and makes us able to bear the load that he puts on us. But walk with God as I have. You've seen me do it. You practice this too. It doesn't mean that you need to adopt the, the, the accent Paul spoke Greek in. It doesn't mean you need to dress like him. It doesn't mean that you need to wear the same kind of sandals he wore as he walked thousands of miles across the Roman Empire. It doesn't even mean that you go to the same place as he went. When Paul likes Dunkin' Donuts. He doesn't go to the other place. It, does, it, it doesn't mean that you adopt mannerisms. Well, he, you know, he would always have this kind of thing he did when he spoke. He'd always, sometimes he would kind of giggle a little bit or, or whatever his manners, he would kind of go <laughs> before he'd say something. And so we start copying his mannerisms. We don't know any of that stuff. None of the personality of Paul is visible to us except you know, his priorities. Sometimes his humor, sometimes his, his wit is available to us. But the point is that you see Paul walking by the Spirit <clears throat> in the mission that Christ has given him. And for him, that's his life. And so, look, I know that this is impossible. <coughs> We're talking about a Christian life you can't live. No one can except that the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you. And you can do all things through him who strengthens you. You can do what God wants you to do. Jesus said, greater works than these you will do because the Spirit is going to come and enable you to do the things that please God. You can do what God wants you to do only in his power. And that is the Christian life of Paul. That is walking by the Spirit. We also closed down this year the study on prayer. I called it Thy Will Be Done. It was a year. It was a little more than a year of Wednesdays through the New Testament on prayer. We surveyed the entire New Testament. It was fun. It was fantastic. I love surveying the whole of the Scriptures. And it's always a great uh, opportunity to, to survey our our theology, our doctrinal categories, we're walking through the entire <clears throat> portion of Scripture like the New Testament. We started with the Gospels, which tells you how Jesus prayed, how he prayed, when he prayed, what he prayed for. Acts, which shows you what the apostles prayed for at times, a little bit in Acts. And then Paul tells you his prayer life and what he prays for in the epistles. He tells you what you need to do about prayer in his instruction, and he teaches you, by example, this is what I'm praying for you. And there is such great wealth of how to pray in the way Paul and the other apostles wrote about prayer. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, which is mostly uh, resurrected saints in heaven praising God, glorifying him for his great salvation and for uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. The most important takeaways as we close down, I have three things uh, to, to, uh, to share with you that were the big takeaways from the study on prayer. First, we learned what to pray for. We learned what to pray for. If you're starting your prayer with, I want X, Y, or Z outcome, I want this to happen, you're not on board yet with the New Testament teaching on prayer. I want this person to be healed. Well, we all do. I want this thing to happen. The, the starting point in your prayer is you're talking to God who has a perspective, and you need to start with fellowship with him. So what, do, what does the New Testament teach you to pray for? It, you pray in accordance or for God's revealed will. What God said he wants, you ask God to do it. You join with God in his works by asking him for what he said he wants. It's again and again and again in the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles and Revelation. God, have your way. God has told you throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament what he wants. 
The second question after we figure out what to pray for is, well, what is that? What is God's revealed will? Read the Bible. He tells you what he wants. Well, he doesn't tell me what kind of car to buy or whether to marry this person or, or what, what kind of house or what, where to live or what kind of career. Do we continue in Connecticut? Or, you know, like what, he doesn't tell us the answers to those questions in the Bible. Right. He tells you to make disciples of all the nations. He tells you for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He tells you the important stuff and the rest of it you would apply wisdom within the framework of God, what God revealed. He gives you his promises. He gives you his commands. And I would recommend if you're kind of new to this thought, start with what he tells you in the New Testament. It's a great place to start. What has God said to you? And like, here's my question. Here's a good question. For example, this week, could you look at your life, like review the week and say, This week, I walked in dependence on the power supplied by God the Holy Spirit and the endeavor God placed on my life of making disciples within my spiritual gift, at my level of spiritual maturity, with my my responsibility with the people God put in front of me. Can you say that you lived that week? Or would you say, well, naturally, we're just kind of getting through. I mean, I got up, I went to work. I did my, th- my thing, I got home, didn't, you know, I, I almost uh, got mad at this guy that cut me off, but then I remember, no, don't get angry, let God, you know, have room. And so I didn't, you know, I was able to restrain my, my anger. See what I mean? Like, most of us are just going through life. But Paul is saying there's something higher and better, right? And so the revealed will of God is that you would make disciples of all the nations. I didn't say you got to go to seminary. You're here. We're studying, we're equipping the saints for the ministry of service right now. If you're interested in seminary studies, we have it for you. It's Chafer Theological Seminary. It's a seminary in your local church. I know the dean. Y'all come hang out. We'll talk about uh, advanced studies. But, but right here, right now, <coughs> you're being equipped to know what God's revealed will is. It is that you would be part of his grand project. <clears throat> and, and seeing that as the, the awesome thing that it is, it takes a little time in the Word. And if you don't have that perspective, like, I don't want to make disciples, I don't want to concern myself for other people, I don't see that as the great good, that's because you're not in the Word as much as you could be, and as much as you will be, spend some time. You will come to see this. God will help you along in this maturation process of seeing that your life is for God's work. But it's a maturity issue. And so, why? This is a really good theological question. Why? Would I choose for God to have his way in my life and not my way? Why would that be something I would ever do? Most human beings, the vast majority of human beings will never make that consideration. Listen to me. Most people in the world, in your culture, at school, in uh, college, at work, <clears throat> even the good people, you know, the teachers. Most people, uh, they will come take care of you in the hospital Pray for those people right now. They're under a pretty heavy load. The good people that would never say bad things about anybody. They would never say, you should disregard what you feel like having and ask God to have his way. Almost nobody in the world will say that. Now, Here's why I say it's a no-brainer. I believe in God. God is righteous, and I'm not in my flesh. I'm not, I don't have infinite knowledge, and he does. I don't have infinite love, he is. I don't necessarily want the greatest and highest best even for myself because I don't know what that is. I don't have the righteous character in myself enough to want that if if I did know what it was. And I really don't love myself enough to insist on it like God does. He's an infinite righteous person, lover, and knower of things. So when God has a will, which in the New Testament universally is what God wants, his preferences. When God has a preference, a desire for something, it is based on his perfect righteousness, his infinite love, and his omniscience, his all-knowing. That makes him better at wanting things than me. This is playing pennies and nickels with babies. This is, baby, do you want the $100 bill or the shiny silver dollar? And I mean the the new one that doesn't have any value to it. Do you want the shiny silver dollar? Look how heavy it is. It's pretty. It's got Dwight Eisenhower on the dollar, silver dollar. Um, Here, you can have the silver dollar. You can have the $100 bill. The baby will generally go for the pretty shiny coin because the baby doesn't know, but God knows. He's an infinitely better wanter of things, of good things for us. 
And if you believe in God as his righteousness and his love and his omniscience, then it's easy to say, okay, God, you haven't told me everything, but you've told me enough about yourself. Have your way in my life. Listen to me, young people. God, have your way with who I marry. You let me be wise and you provide what you want with who I marry. You can't possibly know what you'll be getting into, but God does. So ask God, have your way. God, I, I, I like this area of interest, but I'm not sure what to do with my work. I'm not sure what to pursue. I have things that I'd like, but you know, the, the Bible doesn't tell me to do this career. Ask him for wisdom, ask him for guidance, and ask him to have his own good way. Jesus taught us this way. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not as I will, let your will be done. And that's the entirety of the New Testament on prayer. I'll close my summary with Paul's prayer of God's will for the Ephesians. That'll close two series down really nicely. My favorite prayer in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. What does Paul pray? What is God's will for the Ephesians and by extension for you? What does God want for you? For this reason, I too, Paul says, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I too do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So I'm always grateful to God for you because you've provided you in my life as, as uh, those with whom I'll serve. And I always in that Thanksgiving make mention of you in my prayers and ask for what? That God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, I'm asking the Father to do something with you, that he may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Notice the word spirit is under uh, lowercase. It's not capitalized. You already have the Holy Spirit, Ephesians. You're supposed to walk by the power of the Spirit. You're supposed to be filled by the Spirit. He's talking about the inner man being transformed into the thinking and desires of God that he will give you this interchange, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, the epignosis, the full knowledge, the spiritual knowledge of him, that through the inculcation of God's word, you will inside out be transformed as you grow spiritually is what he's asking for. I pray, and here's what will, it'll look like, that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened or opened Echoing what Jesus taught in Matthew 6 about the eyes being the lamp of the body. If you're looking at darkness, the whole body is dark. If you're looking at the Lord Jesus and his light, then, then illumination, then everything is light. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you'll know three things. What is the hope, the confident expectation, looking forward to all that God has promised of your calling? That you'll know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, to your rateness of his power toward us who believe, that you will know this great power, that you'll know God's hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the power of his, uh, the surpassing power that he has toward us who believe in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, that you'll know these things and not just be told about them on Sunday, but you'll know them because his word is richly dwelling within you. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture, for the privilege we've had to think through such incredibly important truth, the way prayer is taught in the New Testament, and the way to live the Christian life as described by the Apostle Paul throughout his letters. Father, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us greater and greater enjoyment and the engagement with your word and the study of who you are, of knowing you on your terms. Until, Father, we can see you face to face and be with your son in, the presence, uh, in your presence in your glorious throne room in person, Father, we'll go continually before the throne of grace in prayer. We, pray, we praise you for that privilege and ask for an increasing, uh, an expanding perspective of the riches of your grace as Paul prayed. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen.